Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hello and welcome to another episode of Cross Section where we wrestle with what it is to be followers of Jesus as we try and navigate the public square, some of the news stories, the current affairs, the politics that's going on. And there is only one story this week. War in Europe, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Putin leading his forces to invade Ukraine and all the consequences of that. We have seen the headlines, we've seen it on newspapers, news, it's relentless coverage. We're seeing this war on social media perhaps more than ever before. There are so many aspects to the story that we're going to be wrestling with today. And today, Damalola is not with us, but we have Joe Evans, who has broken through the glass wall, if you like, from the producer at a co-hosting role. So welcome, Joe. Wonderful to have you with us. Thanks, Peter. Yeah, so like you said, usually, usually I'm behind the scenes telling people when they're talking too much or saying things that don't make sense. That's my usual role. But yeah, this week I'm joining you. Very excited to be here. And you also run the Twitter polls that we do in the social media. Yes. So every week we put out a question. So if you're not already following us, we're at EA UK News on Twitter, at Evangelical Alliance on Instagram. And every week we put out a Twitter poll to get the audience involved in the conversation we're having here. This week the question was, should Russians still be allowed to play in international sports events? On Twitter, 88.5% of you said no. And on Instagram, let me just get the very latest numbers. On Instagram, only 70% of people said no. So that's quite interesting. Well, um, I was one of the people on Twitter that said yes. Um, I think it's been fascinating how uh, international sports federations have responded in this. So uh, the Olympic Committee um, said that uh, they would be um, banning Russian athletes and Belarusian athletes from the Olympic Games in the future. Now, the next Olympic Games is two and a half years away. Uh, the Paralympian Committee had uh, taken a different stance, had said that they couldn't compete as Russian athletes, but they, the individuals could compete as neutral athletes. But again, uh, so much criticism came to that decision that they reversed that course, and now there won't be any uh, Belarusian or Russian athletes competing at the Paralympic Games. Uh, we had it in tennis when a Russian and Ukrainian tennis player were playing together. The Russian competed as a neutral, as an individual. So I think we need to tease out when is it the state and when is it the individual? Like EA Games have even taken the Russian football team off their football uh, game. It feel, and the Formula One have banned Grand Prix from Russia. I thought we had our own Evangelical Alliance games there for a second, Dan. You confused me. I see what you're saying now. So, but, well, on the Paralympics, it was the athletes who pushed hardest, as I understand it, to say this is not acceptable. You're saying they should be allowed to compete. I think in the Olympics, I think the Olympics is highly politicized and I think countries use it for status and I think Russia have used it for status. So I think banning the Russian team from the Olympics uh, where it is seen as a national team, I have no problem with that. Um, I think when it is individual athletes competing in a sport, um, I would give them the freedom to do that. And I think as neutral athletes, if they're willing to do that, that is how I would navigate that. And th that's really interesting that cool. you... Cool, I would have said. What was that, Peter? 
Oh, I do. I think that's a bit of a sham. Danny's making a, a distinction here between the, the individuals, and so that's what Russia did at the last Olympics, and a total kind of front and a sham. But hey, you were coming in. Well, it's interesting that you voted that they should be allowed to play or compete because when it came to the Olympics and it was all around doping, I would have totally been with you. I felt sorry for the the Russian athletes, but on this issue with this new conflict, I actually voted that they shouldn't, they shouldn't be allowed to compete. I still have sympathy for the athletes themselves, but I just think this issue is so big um, that, that dramatic statements need to be made. But it's interesting on the, I don't know if you saw the coverage of a tennis game in a Mexican Open between Alina Sutalina sure I pronounced that right, who is a Ukrainian tennis player. She was playing Russian tennis player Anastasia Potapova. And all the coverage has been about, I mean, it's quite an emotional story. All of it's been about how the Ukrainian tennis player, she was absolutely determined there was no way she was losing that tennis game. Initially, she refused to play. Then uh, it was ruled that the Russian player wouldn't be playing in Russian colours or Russian flag. So she agreed to play. But what I find kind of sad about the story or, or interesting, disturbing, whatever word you want, is that we've not heard anything about Potapova's politics, which you might say is irrelevant, but I, I feel like she's been it's been used for this kind of political moment, but she is just she's just been used as a symbol for her country. We don't hear anything about her as a person, how she felt going into the game. She might have been there like my country's doing, um, Putin's doing this awful thing. There's no way I can win this game. I just, I feel like um, they're being slightly used in this situation. So it does raise some pretty big questions. We're sometimes distinguishing between President Putin and Russia. Uh, we're sometimes unclear as to whether individual athletes should be punished or whole countries in this sense. Uh, it's about responsibility and accountability. It's a question we want to return to because I don't think I've ever seen Western uh, companies try to get out of Russia so fast, Shell and BP and a lot of the big oil companies who knew exactly what was going on and had deals with these Russian oil companies have pulled out. We've seen Ford, JCB, ASOS, Apple, Boeing, you name it. The list seems to go on and on. Um, and so people are pulling back. We've seen people bravely make statements. The Russian Evangelical Alliance uh, was fairly publicly critical of the president. That's a very bold and brave move. Uh, we've seen even jog alliances around the world. So we put out our own statement if you want to see that. So that's the issue we're going to come back to and we're going to explore a little bit more. Um, but to do that, we wanted to set this in a context. So this morning, Thursday morning, I sat down with Ryan Burton King. Uh, Ryan is originally from the USA, but he's pastored here in the UK for 19 years. He's part of a church planting network. And so what he has uh, been to Ukraine many times as part of that. And he met his wife there and um, his sister-in-law is Ukrainian still there. And we talk actually a little bit about her coming out and escaping uh, Kyiv. Um, and so uh, we got connected through a friend and I, I asked him just to help us uh, as your co-host in this, but also your listeners to maybe understand a little bit more about what's happening. And so we're going to cut to that interview now. So one, we hear lots of stories, we're getting a lot of news. I mean, you have family there. What, what sort of things are you hearing on the ground? What things can you say, hey, I, that's true, that's resonating, or, or yeah, tell us something of what you're hearing. Well, it, it, it is really brutal and uh, truly, truly horrific. I think that there was a real sense in which this had been developing for many years. 
the initial thing that I was hearing and in fact uh, saying was that this is actually not a surprise. This is not out of the blue. It's not random at all. Um, uh, as long as I've been going to Ukraine since 2014, uh, or rather 2015 contacts in Ukraine since uh, 2013, 2014, um, I have uh, known this to be a country at war. And uh, it's very evident when you're on the ground that this is a country at war. Uh, loads of people that um, were in the churches where I would be who had military experience, pastors who had been conscripted and had done their time on the front lines in the east. And uh, it, it's just been brewing to this point. Uh, every now and then there would be uh, a Western media source that would uh, say something about Europe's forgotten war. And I, I think we have to ask, why was this ever forgotten? Uh, you know, the, the, there was very real threat uh, for the duration, uh, multiple times since 2014. There has been um, imminent threat of invasion that's been flagged. Uh, only now have they gone through with it. And so it's kind of uh, surprising at that level. At that level, I don't believe anyone thought it would be at the scale that it has been. Uh, we thought that um, they would invade further into the east, perhaps recognize the Donbass region, um, cities like Donetsk and Luhansk, um, that they would recognize those uh, either annexing them as they did Crimea or recognizing them as autonomous um, uh, independent republics. Um, that sort of uh, you know, yeah. pressure into the East it did begin last Wednesday. There were rumors of so-called peacekeeping forces that were um, um, uh, trundling over the border. Uh, but I awakened a week ago today to um, horrific news of bombing all over Ukraine, north, south, east and west, uh, including cities that no one thought would have been of interest so something's been brewing there for a long time in fact there's a long complex history and in one sense we should have been more alert to that but the sheer scale has caught i think most people and you're saying including you and many in ukraine by mm. surprise i mean i think i saw you saying your sister-in-law until a day or two ago was in kiev and, and right in the midst of what was going on there that's right. Yes. My sister-in-law, Arissa, um, is a student. She's 22 years old. She was in Kiev and was uh, was at the epicenter, really, of the, the fighting until uh, just to, let's say, Tuesday night. Yeah, Tuesday night. Uh, she finally, after several days, um, found her way of escape. Uh, it, it's, you know, she, she could hear the shelling, the bombs, the, um, the gunfire, and there were close calls. Uh, there were flashes of, of light outside her windows, especially the, the first night was very, very um, serious where she was. Uh, on Saturday night, we um, called her and there was a blackout. And so we could barely see her. But as we, we spoke to her, um, uh, it, it, you know, she was strong. She was filled with hope. We were aware that uh, there were reports of Chechen mercenaries known for their uh, cruelty and their almost suicidal zeal who were uh, advancing on her area and uh, feeling somewhat helpless. All we could do really was bring it to the Lord. And uh, one thing that we have learned throughout this is uh, experientially the meaning of his mercies are new every morning because we, aw we awaken 
and um, our family is still alive. And um, there's still, while there's life, there's, there's hope. So we, uh, we praise God that she did make it out safely. And we pray for those who have not yet. So help me understand a little bit more about the church in Ukraine. Cause you've got a, I think a pretty significant Orthodox church there, a small, but actually quite influential evangelical church. You've had experience in church planting in, in a kind of minute, what, what the people, what would be helpful for people to try and get that bigger picture of what the church looks like in Ukraine and what it's doing? Yeah, th- thanks for that. So one of the uh, less reported on undercurrents of this present conflict is actually a religious component whereby the Orthodox Church some years ago divided a group of um, uh Orthodox people within Ukraine said they could no longer stay in communion with the um, Russian Orthodox Church under the Moscow Patriarchate. And so they separated. Um, That, of course, is very disruptive to uh, an organization that sees itself as the church and there is salvation in the church. And so um, that sort of disruption, that schism and disunity is of great embarrassment and shame uh, to the Russian Orthodox Church, which is effectively the state church of Russia. So uh, that division is an undercurrent of this. And uh, while the Orthodox Church, yes, is uh, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and various branches is very significant. There's also a substantial Greek Catholic Church, which is a a uniquely Ukrainian denomination. It is um, uh, under the oversight of the papacy in Rome, but functions as um, uh, according to Greek order. So it would appear aesthetically to be Greek Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox of some form, but is submitted to the, um, the, the Pope in Rome. But you're absolutely right about the evangelicals. And um, in fact, uh, just looking at Baptists, uh, I believe that we, uh, we see that the Baptist churches in um, Ukraine, Baptist believers in Ukraine, are second only to those in the United Kingdom as far as their, their size is concerned in Europe. Um, and that's, that's substantial, significant, but I, I think it's actually more significant when we go beneath the surface. Uh, it, really, many Baptist churches, and this is an uncomfortable subject, but many Baptist churches have drifted from evangelical faith and practice over the past century in, um, in the UK. Uh, in Ukraine, they are very strong in their submission to the authority and sufficiency of scripture and um, whatever uh, other things might ail them um, congregationally, they are um, uh, staunch um, upholders of the word of God. And um, they are also uh, uh, quite sizable, healthy in number and commitment and devotion, both uh, in their gatherings to worship, which would be more frequent than our own and uh, throughout the week and uh, in their engagement with their local communities through all manner of social projects that show the light of Christ. And how is that church, because uh, God land is my, how is that, how are, they, how are they right now? Any stories you're hearing right at this moment in the midst of war? Yes, uh, they, they are keeping strong. There was a document, I believe it was a 20 point document that uh, the Ukrainian churches put together, Baptist churches put together. And the, the, the first thing that they, um, they have on that list is an encouragement to their congregations to, as 
able and um, um, equipped to push back against the enemy. I, I think we have for so long been distant from uh, uh, sorts of uh, warfare in our islands that uh, we we might balk at that a bit. Um, oh, you know, churches, pastors saying push back against the, the enemy, but there's a, a strong encouragement um, to defend themselves, to defend their families, to defend their homes and their, their nation from um, a totalitarian regime that is uh, brutally opposed to the Ukrainian people, but also persecutes its own people, not least of them Christians. There was uh, some division between Ukrainian Baptists and Russian Baptists uh, over the relative silence of Russian Baptists on the Ukraine issue. Uh, that was resolved uh, somewhat um, uh, in a private meeting between Ukrainian uh, and Russian Baptist leaders where the Ukrainians came to understand the pressures Russian Baptists are under. So they've, they've known a fair amount of unity. Many people are fleeing, of course, but many are staying put and are um, uh, doing what they can to provide refuge, accommodation, food and shelter and uh, pastoral care. Yeah, we've commented, I think, last week on our podcast about the Russian Evangelical Alliance, our sister organization there, was actually reasonably public in its critique, which was a very bold and brave move, uh, given the pressures in Russia that you've noted. Ryan, last question I'd love to ask is just as a pastor, as a Christian, as somebody here in the UK, um, advice as to how we respond. So the heart of cross-section is we're living at the intersection of our passion and following of Jesus and the kind of news and current affairs that we're hearing. And sometimes in moments like this, it can feel a bit overwhelming. We're getting information. We're trying to understand what's even happening. I mean, I've seen you tweet around prayers and, and some of the events you've been attending. What are some of the practical ways that we can respond to help uh, our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and to lean into this situation overall as Christians? I think it starts really with listening to uh, Ukrainian voices or people who are close to Ukrainian voices um, um, for for information at this time. Uh, there's a great deal of disinformation that's out there, and it can be very painful and disruptive to receive, as I have, people telling me the invasion's not really happening or you're compromising your position as a pastor by by, by taking um, a side on, on this issue. Um, and I think that it would be best if such people who have doubts or questions just listen and pray. Um, even if their alternatives are correct, they can do nothing about it. Please pray. Uh, also seek to love your neighbors around you, um, uh, Russian and Ukrainian uh, uh, neighbors. Uh, of course, that may look different depending on um, the perspectives of those, those involved, how you should go about that, but find practical, tangible ways to, to love. There are um, every day convoys of Ukrainian men who are leaving our islands to go east to fight and others who are going east to provide refuge along the Polish, Moldovan and Romanian borders. So I would encourage you to see if you can connect with any groups that are um, gathering aid. Uh, uh, if you wish to give tangibly, you can get, there are lists of things that you can actually give yourself, not, not financial, um, that will then be transported to the East. If you um, wish to give financially, there are any number of projects that are underway. 
as Christians, I would encourage you to uh, see, first of all, what your local church is doing and who your local church is partnering with. But beyond that, there are plenty of organizations as well that you can get involved in. I would suggest that you look for people who are working with those on the ground directly so that you can see what your money's going to and the impact it's making. Ryan, I want to thank you. I have lots more questions in many ways, but we've got a limit there. This is so helpful at just in helping us frame and think about the conversation. I appreciate you sharing your wisdom, your insight, and your experience on this. And bless you and your family and all that you're doing uh, right now and in the longer term in, in Ukraine. Thank you so much. Thank you, Peter. Peter, thanks so much for that interview. Just a reminder, as you're listening, you can be following us on socials, getting those polls, seeing what we're up to. On Twitter, that's at News, and on Instagram, that's at Evangelical Alliance. You can also be getting involved in the conversation. What aren't we talking about that you would like us to be? What do you like that we're doing? Either is fine. Email us cross.section at eauk.org. And we are loving that so many people are listening. Thank you so much for that. Um, it's good to shout out that this is brought to you by the Evangelical Alliance. We are a membership organization, the largest and the oldest membership organization representing evangelical Christians in the UK. You can sign up, you can become a member of the Evangelical Alliance for as little as £3 a month. Go to our website, check that out. That helps support all the different work that we're doing, including the podcast, lots of our public policy and advocacy work. Um, so love you to consider that. And it was great to sit down with Ryan this morning. These things are fast moving. It was great to get his insights. But I kind of wonder now as we get a chance to reflect on that interview and maybe what some of your thoughts are, guys, as you listen to that. Yeah, I mean, points that interview just hit in a heavy way. There was a line where Ryan said, seeing your people being incinerated before your eyes, which just, just kind of takes your breath away a little bit. He also talked about kind of whether or Ukrainian pastors encouraging people to take up arms, which just um, got me thinking Old Testament biblical and trying to work out what that looks like today now that Jesus is, has been. So that, that's what's left my mind doing somersaults after listening to that. And I think it's, it's a fresh reminder that we are brothers and sisters in Christ across the globe. So uh, this morning, I, I, I am in Cardiff today and I've been at the parliamentary prayer breakfast um, at the Welsh Parliament. And I've been talking to uh, Christians from Finland, from Denmark, from the United States. And it's just a reminder, and we were praying for Ukraine as well as for Wales this morning. And it is a reminder that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, that the church across the world and actually, it's an opportunity. And the number of churches I've heard from um, in the last week with partners or missionary organisations that work in Ukraine, um, the work that Christian organisations do across the globe is incredible. But actually hearing the voices of people who are in those countries is absolutely vital at this time, particularly um, when we're seeing lots of pictures of what's happening in Ukraine, but we're not perhaps hearing that much of, from voices of what's actually being experienced by people in those situations. And it is a real challenge. Like there, there are strong Christian lines of thought around pacifism, and there are many Christians take that position. Uh, and then there's a Christian articulation around just war and, and when it's appropriate, when it can be justified to go to war. And much of what's happening in Ukraine does seem to meet that. Because when Ryan said that line, I was, I was quite struck about this. The first thing they were saying was about taking up arms. But 
I was like, it's really hard to know what that would feel like because I'm sitting in a very secure, safe environment uh, today in Northern Ireland. But we, you know, there are moments when you can resonate that. Like, what would happen if people are coming and attacking my family, my community, those that I love? What if that's right on the doorstep? What choice do you have in terms of self-defense? And so I think it does get us thinking about what's an appropriate response. And it's very easy to kind of say, oh, I'm not so sure about that. And then you think, well, actually, look at the pictures of what I'm seeing. And is it appropriate for me as a Christian to say, yes, there is good and evil in this moment. And it's not simple. I'm not, it's not as simple as just to say Putin's evil and all in Ukraine is good. Because we've heard, we've heard stories of, that are problematic on all sides. But fundamentally, would I be prepared to take up arms in defense of my family and my community? And I think that I would. Though I was petrified to see some of the things going on there. I mean, I must admit, I'd probably be inclined to run first, not because I don't think fighting is appropriate, because I'm not sure I have the courage to stand in the way that some are in that moment. So I find it a really striking interview from that perspective. And I, I've often thought that I verge towards pacifism, but I always want to hold out the fact that actually sometimes it might be necessary. Sometimes that might be. And just war theory, if taken seriously, sets a really high bar. Um, but I would be confident that in this situation in Ukraine, it is met, that there is a, res uh, a responsibility uh, to engage um, in defence of your country, in defence of your family, in defence of your community. Um, but it, I'm with Peter. Like, I might theoretically say that I'd be willing to do that but actually doing it is a far harder challenge and yet to see the courage of people doing just that is incredible mm. we yeah it's interesting with you both saying that and i as well have been thinking what what would it look like if war came to the uk in this way if my husband tom was told he had to stay and i had to leave getting emotionally caught up in that Peter, do you think that you've been more emotionally engaged following the news of this conflict than you have in previous conflicts? Take the ones in the Middle East, for, for example. I think it definitely raises that question. We were chatting about this before. Like, I think that is a question that's definitely been asked. And it's one I've wrestled with. Like, so do I care more about this war? Is that a geographical question because it's war in Europe? And, you know, I live in Europe and that feels much closer and we had the second world first and second world wars and we thought this was the end of the wars we knew is that the reason is there a is there a deeper element to that that these are european people who look like me and that question's been asked we, we saw some of the social media stories uh, about a lady i think it was from nigeria who was denied boarding to a bus and said no this is only for ukrainians and the pushback around that and and is that why i'm more invested in this story and i think it's really health, healthy to be asked that question and, and to think about why that is. And I also think there's a piece, though, that we thought these wars had ended in Europe. We're in a liberal democracy. It's the end of history argument. Some of you might have heard that. I think it's uh, Francis Fukuyama said that. We're at the end of history because we're not going to have wars anymore. I, I mentioned this last week. No two countries with a McDonald's go to war with each other. But actually, these two countries do have McDonald's and they have gone to war. And we thought that couldn't happen. And it's actually really challenging the kind of progressive Western story that we have moved beyond war. It's simply not true, actually, because we're still sinful people and we're going to see moments like this. We haven't moved beyond sin and evil and violence in our world. But So I am provoked by the question. I want to think about it a little bit more biblically and think, well, yeah, but st sin still exists. We live in a fallen world. And I hope that I am as provoked by all wars, but 
I'm probably not, and I need to reflect on that. Yeah. And, well, Francis Fukuyama brings back memories of my first year political theory classes. Um, I think it is really interesting to interrogate what we think about this conflict and what that means. So I think in the context of the yeah, First and Second World War and the Cold War, the threat of war on the plane of Europe, and the fact that this is now what we are seeing, uh, we thought it would be the old Soviet Union posing the threat. Now it's actually within what was that territory. So I, I think there is something that this was something we feared for a long time and we're now actually seeing something happen. I think it's also the fact that we've got used to conflict in other places and with, there's fatigue. So there will be headlines, whether it's in Syria or when you see conflicts in Afghanistan. And we're outraged, but it quickly uh, falls off the media agenda. And I, so I think there is a fatigue question. And I think this has brought it back to the forefront of our attention. But I do also think, and if you look at some of the... Right. Hungary is the most obvious example. They have historically had a very anti-immigrant uh, stance under Viktor Orban. Um, but perhaps now are more willing to accept refugees from Ukraine um, because it's of a certain type of refugee, perhaps. So I think it is important to ask difficult questions of what is influencing our empathy with this particular situation. Um, but I think we also need um, to see what's going on across the world. Yeah, I, I think you're right. It is a really, it's important that we ask ourselves why, why do I find myself tearing up looking at some of these stories in a way that either, I was going to say that I haven't in the Middle East. I have in the Middle East, but you're right. We, we get used to it, as sick as that, that is to kind of say out loud. I think also just in my personal experience with what's going on in Ukraine, I don't know if you saw the video going around of a Ukrainian house church singing He Will Hold Me Fast in Ukrainian. It's about 10 or so people in a room. <laughs> Someone sent me that in the EA office this week and I was in tears at my desk, which was slightly embarrassing in and of itself. But, but there's something so moving as a Christian living in the UK, thinking if I were to be in that sort of frightening situation, could I, will I, could I be singing, he will hold me fast, totally trusting and relying on the Lord in that. And I think, yeah, seeing literally our brothers and sisters in Christ kind of coping with that in real time is really emotive because it, it's an encouragement in a strange sort of way of seeing people cling to their faith, depend on their faith in that moment. And it's a challenge to my own faith as well. And Ryan and I, I think we're talking just before the interview about the theological and anthropological almost framing of this, like the, everybody is a divine image bearer. What does that mean for our response to this situation? And I think that raises a lot of questions for us. We have a Being Human project. You can find out more about that elsewhere in our work in EA, but that's an important piece of like, this is a fundamental question. What does it mean to be human in our world today? And what does that do to our framing of this war narrative and dialogue? And then it raises the consistency question, which we've been talking about from a policy response to this. So the UK has talked about how many people it would take in, and there's been a big campaign to say, hey, you need to take in more people. That goes back to our, well, why in this moment again, is that because they're Ukrainian European people, or is that just because they're people suffering from war? 
and what is our general approach to immigration? I know, Danny, you've been thinking more about this because there is a bill live right now around immigration. We've been engaging as EA on that, but what does this war and this moment raise around that conversation? Yeah, so the, the government uh, proposed a, a, what they called a new plan for immigration last year and then some legislation off the back of that um, that would make the UK immigration system more stringent. Um, uh, there's a lot of complexities around it, but and it's been very controversial, and the government are pushing it through Parliament. Um, the House of Lords have rejected large components of it, um, and, but I honestly expect um, the government to get their way on most of this. But it does ask the question of who are we letting in? And one of the pieces of rationale for the government in doing this was that they would be able to respond to emergency situations with compassion where we need to be able to uh, grant people asylum and welcome uh, refugees in. And I think this is just that sort of situation. The government have announced a number of different schemes, um, primarily linked to family that are resident in the UK. There's a community sponsorship scheme which is interesting but would take time to set up. And YouGov found that 77% of the public backed the UK uh, welcoming people fleeing the war in Ukraine regardless of their visa status. And actually that's true across the political divide. It varies a little bit, but a majority of people that supported all the main parties uh, backed as welcoming Ukrainians into the UK. And I, so I think the government needs to do that. And I actually think because of their rationale for the Nationality and Borders Bill, it's why they should do this. Mm. There's also an inconsistency, con inconsistency question over the, the protesting issue. So you will have seen news Russians protesting in Russia against um, Putin taking Russia to, to war, leading his own people to death. And that has been really praised in UK circles, people saying, and politicians saying how brave the Russians are being. And yet at the same time, there's this bill being discussed in UK Parliament at the moment, um, the Police Crime and Sentencing Bill, which is looking at putting limits on protesting. So imposing a start and finish time, setting noise limits, and applying these rules even to when it's just one person protesting, which really asks the question of, does the UK government, or do we in the UK think it's okay to have protest kind of by any means when it's a an important enough cause is is the uk government kind of yeah putting in more importance on something like russia going to war than things that we might feel are worth protesting here in the uk um peter what do you think about that yeah i think i mean i think this whole story and our, our response to it exposes a lot about the kind of western democratic, i.e. Our, our cultural story, which is actually when it's pushed, driven a lot more by emotion and feelings than we want to admit. So we kind of just feel this doesn't look good or this is wrong. We feel about this. And then we start to realize there's just fundamental inconsistencies that we say, well, those protests aren't good, but these ones over here are fine. We say, well, you shouldn't allow these people into our country, but we're going to allow this group in. We start to get the pushback countries that we all have probably invested in through our pensions and things we're, we're operating in Russia and now we suddenly say well they shouldn't even though we knew all along they probably shouldn't have been doing it and I think it's exposing the the kind of limitations of the secular story to be blunt and we're going to push in and say actually we think the faith story has a really good response to this and, and a really good engagement that doesn't mean it's a simple answer it still raises questions for us 
And so I think that's where the interview with Ryan was helpful to explore some of those. What's the practical response look like on the ground? To be reminded we're part of this much larger global community of brothers and sisters who follow Jesus. And what does that uh, look like to lean into that space? We need to bring this into land. Joe, I think you've one more thing you want to add, and then I'm going to try and uh, close us off. We've run a little longer because this is such an important story. But Joe. Mm. Well, I was just, I was just going to say, I think I'm thinking about people listening to this podcast and for emotional types like myself who find yourself crying at the news i think it's really easy to get um, pulled into the guilt cycle of feeling guilty about not getting as emotional about other conflicts and atrocities that are going on in the world at the moment so i think i just think it's important as christians when our emotions get stirred up by a news story such as the war going on to not to not go straight to guilt to to let god gives us emotions and it's it's good and right that we feel upset about what's going on and rather than feeling guilty we can use that to think how can i be loving my other neighbors my other global neighbors better so take it as kind of emotional yeah not not go straight to guilt but think it's it's okay it's okay to be getting really upset at this war and just just to be asking ourselves those questions how can I care about other countries as much as I care about what's going on here? Yeah, I think we've often lost the, the, the space for lament and grief and we need to pour that out and the psalmist and other places really help us to do that. Sometimes we don't have the answers and we don't need to rush that. We just to say, why, oh Lord, we don't know what else to pray. We just call out to you and we ask you in this moment to give us, give us even the words to pray because we don't have it. We, we don't know how else to express the, 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 the deep sense of grief that we feel. Uh, we, we have some resources on our website, not just a statement, but some practical links from member organizations and others that are really trying to help in this moment um, to respond to Ukraine, because sometimes, again, we say we want to do something. And so we're so thankful for that. One of our member organizations, Open Doors, actually began its work, and Brother Andrew did some of his work in Ukraine. One of the interesting things they were just mentioning, because a former colleague of ours is there now, Dave Landrum, uh, was just saying that actually they don't need to work in Ukraine in the same way because there is an openness for the gospel and to be able to share that. But they were highlighting that China has just passed some legislation that does prevent online church, which is just like a, a remarkable thing you might miss in all the other stories going on. So they're making it illegal for gatherings online of unregistered churches, which is basically the house church movement in China. And so, and you can't share religious content online. And so it's partly, we're just mentioning that to say, Ukraine is by far the big story, but don't miss some other stories going on. Things have shifted in Ukraine. We can talk to churches there and be in communion and fellowship with them. But our brothers and sisters in China are feeling oppression in a different way. And I guess all of that makes me want to land on this point again about our freedoms that we have. And sometimes we take them for granted. And in a moment like this, we can see it on, on the boundaries of Europe. We can see a war going on that we never expected. And we can suddenly sense, oh gosh, do we take our freedoms for granted? What does that mean? We know it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. We know it is the truth that sets us free in this moment. And sometimes we're going to read stories about where those freedoms are being impinged here locally. And of course, there are moments when that happens. But actually, I think the biggest challenge in this moment is what are we doing with the freedoms that we have? And in this moment, people have lots and lots of questions. Uh, people are unsure how to respond to a war in this moment. And it does, again, bring death right into our faces. And there's a moment where people ask those deeper questions. 
and I think it gives us an opportunity just to come alongside people, to pass them, to be, to be with them, to journey with them in these moments and to use the freedoms that we have in the culture that we've been given. So as we close, we're going to play the clip that Joe was talking about. Uh, we're not sure exactly when that's dated from, but it is Ukrainian Christian singing and worshipping. And so we pray with what we hope is a righteous anger against those who dehumanize others against the evil and barbarity that we are seeing. We pray for peace and for courage and protection for those in Ukraine. We pray for the peacemakers working towards reconciliation behind the scenes. We pray for those ministering in Ukraine, church leaders and others. We pray for those in surrounding countries uh, who are taking in those who are fleeing. And Father, we pray for those right now who are asking questions. We pray that this may be a moment that they turn to and seek you out. And when we don't know what else to pray, we pray, come Holy Spirit. Cross Section. Conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture.